I do like transitions, so I'll try to weave uh, Doug Grohl's comments uh, and uh, what was said before into mine so the two can flow together. Uh, as far as the demythologizing of our own history, uh, I'll be going from uh, uh, Dr. Sanchez's focus on first article theology and the uh, third article theology and the Catholicity of the church uh, to first article theology and the historicity of the church. Uh, because sometimes we, we, we just focus on that center, uh, that second article theology, which is central, uh, but we forget all the other persons of the Trinity. And so our theology isn't quite as robust uh, as it could be. And so in that uh, demythologizing of our own history, uh, that myth of centrality is that when we place ourselves at the center, that means Jesus is no longer at the center. <laughs> because uh, Luther and Augustine had this very deep understanding of sin, not necessarily as just bad things that are done that we recognize, but when we turn in on ourselves. Whenever we place ourselves at the center, that means that we've pushed someone else from the center, namely Jesus. Uh, and so uh, uh, thinking through that historically is also helpful because sometimes we're so embedded in our own stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves that we, we don't listen well, as uh, Doug mentioned. But it's easier for us to see how others before us have done it. And then we can use the historicity of the church as a mirror to whether or not we are being faithful to the Catholicity of the church. Uh, and so that's how I'll try to orient uh, much of this uh, talk, uh, but uh, it hurts me that Dr. Sanchez says that I'm on my own for the q and I was really hoping that he would help me out, but we shall see if this works. Let me know if you can see the screen. Does it work? Yay? Okay. All right. Uh, so the, the title that was shared and that I'm trying to hold myself within the confines of is not surviving but thriving kingdom ministry in a time of pandemic and racial tension. And so even here we see part of the historicity of the church in that we're thinking theologically about a historical moment. Pandemic and racial tension are things that are embedded in this historical moment. But we know from Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and other uh, important wisdom literature that there is nothing new under the sun. That theologically, we can tap into the resources of our own history to try to think theologically about this moment. Sometimes people say that things are unprecedented. Now, while the internet or uh, Wi-Fi might be unprecedented in a particular sense, theological themes are things that have come up again and again. And so I want to both focus on scripture and an interpretation of scripture by a theologian from our own uh, tradition. Uh, John 13 verse seven uh, states, what I, do uh, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Uh, it's from the famous uh, count of the foot washing on Monday, Thursday, when Jesus is trying to wash the disciples' feet, namely Peter in particular. And Peter says, I'll have nothing of it because I don't understand what's going on based on my first article theology of how the world works, how there's certain people at the top and certain people at the bottom. You should not be washing my feet. He was really embedded in his historical cultural understanding of how the world works. But you know the story. Jesus says, you don't understand it now, but you'll understand it hereafter. 
And if you won't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. And so Peter says, well, then don't just wash my feet, my hands and my whole body. Like I'll go, I'll get the full car wash treatment. Uh, you can wax on, wax off, whatever you need to do. Uh, but, but what Jesus was doing here was giving a historical, almost a proto uh, theology of the cross uh, to recognize, uh, to help Peter recognize that God's ways aren't always our ways. That he he embedded this in a humility, as he said, to give an example for you to follow after I am gone. This theology of the cross instead of a theology of uh, glory, where we don't place ourselves at the top or at the center, but where we recognize that if we have been given the gift of God's love, God's spirit, God's grace, that we are called to go out and share that to the ends of the earth. But sometimes uh, to get to the point of thriving for the sake of others, we need to reflect on what it means to survive. How, how we actually get to the point of survival, especially in a year like 2020 with the pandemic and racial tensions and job losses and everything else that is going on around us. There was a mention of Bill testing positive for COVID at my home church uh, in Calumet City, Illinois, or Lansing, Illinois, actually. Uh, Ray uh, just got back from the ICU, one of the church members, uh, after testing positive for COVID as well. And so it's starting to hit home in a number of ways, uh, whether existentially or pragmatically, uh, to think through how the church makes it through, how the church survives in a year like this year, and even more so uh, churches within ethnic ministry, African-American churches, Latino uh, churches, African immigrant churches, and so on and so on. So. Uh, to think about that, we also need to think theologically, because if we strictly think of survival mode from a worldly sense, uh, I'll talk about this later, there is a danger both to our local church and also to the Catholicity of the church. Because often when we try to survive, we think about self-preservation, which means we think about ourselves and not the other. Uh, Dr. Valerie Cooper over at Duke Divinity School in her text, Word Like Fire, Maria Stewart, The Bible and the Rights of African Americans, asked the question, what if you did the work of a theologian and no one noticed? Uh, for those who don't know her, Maria Stewart uh, was born in the 1800s. Uh, she was a free person of color, African American, uh, but she was a teacher, a journalist, a lecturer and an abolitionist. She used her freedom to advocate for the freedom of others. Even if it put her own life at risk, uh, she reached out to share God's love with the world. But her, uh, Dr. Valerie Cooper's question was, what if you did the work of a theologian and no one noticed? Because they mostly considered her that teacher, that journalist, that abolitionist. But if you look at her text, all of them are grounded and central in the work of Jesus and the word of scripture. And so it's easy to dismiss the work of certain people who are doing good work in the world and not think of them as theologians, people who are talking about God and thinking about the word of God. And so I asked the same question about a woman in our tradition, uh, Dr. Rosa J. Young, to think of her not just as a person at, like a teacher or a journalist or a lecturer, but as a theologian who was wrestling with the same issues we are wrestling with today and approached it theologically to try to bring a solution that the world necessarily could not uh, particularly bring. Uh, for those who know her, I don't really need to say much about her, uh, the mother of Black Lutheranism, uh, but uh, Dr. Rosa J. Young, uh, born 1890, um, 
I don't have enough time to tell her full story, but she's uh, written an autobiography. Uh, she's done good work, uh, started dozens of schools in Alabama, the Florida Panhandle uh, and beyond, uh, was formative in the creation of Concordia Selma, the only Lutheran HBCU that closed a couple of years ago. Uh, and so she is a large chunk of the reason that Black Lutheranism still exists to this day uh, because of the work that she did in the South. Even many of the churches in the North uh, were from Black Lutherans from Alabama during the Great Migration who traveled North to cities like Philadelphia, Chicago, and so on. But what Rosa Young had to face uh, was a little bitty bug called the bull weevil. Uh, it was the reality that brought her schools before she had joined the Lutheran Church to the breaking point. To the breaking point, that she was running out of money uh, because there was essentially a pre-Great Depression before the Great Depression, and so she was brought to her lowest point, and she had to think about how to survive in a time of pandemic and racial tensions because not only was the bull weevil part of the cause of her concern in 1914 and 1915, but a few years later, there would be the Spanish flu pandemic, uh, basically coronavirus 1919, uh, which uh, decimated the populations and also led to economic downfall. And in the following year, in 1920, Niels Bakke, one of the uh, major uh, missionaries of the Lutheran Church uh, to the African-American population, uh, ill health uh, caused him to leave the Alabama mission field. And so the great missionary was no longer on the scene, leaving Rosa Young to build the school from the ground up again in 1920. And then between 1920 and 1929, Rosa Young uh, fell into such ill health herself uh, that she wrote the autobiography thinking that this was her end of life story, that she wasn't going to live beyond 1929 when the autobiography Light in the Dark Belt was published. So it was almost her farewell to everybody. She lived a lot longer than that, but her health was so low that she was writing this text to try to encourage the next generation of Black Lutheran teachers and pastors to keep on keeping on. But she survived. But then in 1929 to 1939, there was the Great Depression, which made things for Concordia Selma and all of the schools still difficult over the entirety of that decade. And then bookending before she was born and after she died was the reality of the Jim Crow South and the laws in place to make life exceedingly difficult and oppressive for African-Americans, particularly in the South, but also in the North as well. So she was dealing with all of this, but yet she tried to approach the reality of surviving from the perspective of scripture. And so in chapter nine of her autobiography, she uses this text, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And she approaches it as a theologian. She says, basically, we cannot understand why the Lord takes our near and dear ones away from us by death, sometimes while they are in the very prime of life. We cannot understand why our dear Lord sometimes lays us low on a bed of sickness she might be speaking of herself at this moment, and pain when we should like so much to be well, going about working in his vineyard and doing good to our friends and fellow men. You see, 
when you're brought to your lowest, to that theology of the cross, you have to think, well, what does it mean to survive when you want to do the good work of ministry for those around you? How can you build up the church when you feel like you are at your lowest? And so she continues by saying, we cannot understand why God, who rules the universe, suffers great steamboat disasters, railroad wrecks, ravages of war, various cruelties, oppressions, persecutions, and all other wrongs, which are found recorded on the pages of history. But although we cannot understand these things, we have the divine promise that they are sent to us for our good and that we quote, shall know hereafter. Here she's thinking about that text uh, where uh, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it or used it for good. That even though there is evil and things that bring us to the lowest point of our lives, that all things work together for good for those who love them. It doesn't mean all things are good in and of themselves, but nothing can separate us from God's love. And so she's here trying to think amid the reality of the bull weevil that her school is about to close because of financial hardship, that she does not understand what's going on in this moment, but she knows she needs to press on because even though she cannot understand in this moment, otherwise she will give into a theology of glory through the lens of the theology of the cross, she knows that God can bring good out of all things, even if she cannot understand how or when or why. And so it's there at her lowest point where she's ready to close the school because of the reality of the bull weevil and the economic hardship facing her area in the South. She said, I decided that I would write one more letter. And if then no relief came, I would close the school for I was just about discouraged. Now that letter was to go to Dr. Booker T. Washington, our great leader. All I asked of him was to give me the names of some individual or association in the North that he thought would help keep me, uh, keep my school alive for the benefit of my race. You see, it's hard to read into this text uh, what she's saying, but uh, not because of the lack of clarity of the language, but because we'd have to know the entire milieu of the South during that time. But her uh, philosophy of education was basically to build the school based on the local support. Uh, from the local Methodist church, uh, from her quote unquote white friends, uh, from people within her church, uh, from the students themselves. She had this understanding that if I could just find local support, then the school would be able to survive. But given that everybody was facing the same hardship, the church wasn't able to support the school. Uh, her friends weren't able to support the school. The people from her church weren't able to support the school. The students weren't able to support the school. So she had to think creatively. She had to think in a new way that was outside of her comfort zone. And so in writing to Dr. Booker T. Washington, uh, who she admired, she was changing her philosophy uh, or her approach to survival to actually reaching out of the South to the North. To, to seeking help from people she normally would not seek help from. 
And so she just wanted the names of those individuals because uh, Dr. Washington was friends with the Carnegies uh, and the Rockefellers. Nowadays, we don't have Carnegie and Rockefeller, but we have the Carnegie Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation. So we still are writing those same sorts of letters as such. But she, she recognized that as times change, strategies change as well, particularly as it relates to survival. If we do the same thing over and over and it doesn't work, they say they call that insanity, <laughs> doing the same thing over and over again and thinking that things will change. That's running against a wall and hoping that it will become a door. It won't. And so she, at her lowest point, reached a change in how she engaged uh, to try to keep the school alive, quote, for the benefit of my race. But Dr. Willie James Jennings, who was at Duke, but now is at Yale uh, Divinity School, says that as we grapple with concerns like survival and money, we have to recognize that money isn't something that happens later, that it's always part of our story of survival. And we have to be careful as we think about survival that it doesn't do something to us in the process. If all we're trying to do is survive, then we might be in the process of a slow and steady death. Dr. Jennings says, money is already a story. Money has been an ever-present sign of commitment to a particular way of life. We are caught always between God and mammon, between the way God organizes relations and the way relations are organized by mammon. How will we live is the crucial question for theological institutions. By this question, we are asking both how will we survive and what will be the character of our surviving. I wanna pause here for a second because we often, as we try to keep the church alive, think about the first question, but we don't often think about the second question. How will we survive is a question of tactics. What will we do or change? Will we cut the budget? Will we get rid of one of the pastors? Will we do something? Ooh. Uh, to, to be able to uh, keep the church afloat? What can we do to help pay the budget for the next year? Uh, what are our tactics? But Dr. Jennings moves the question further by saying, don't only ask how will we survive, but ask what will be the character of our surviving? That's long-term strategy. That's the Catholicity of the church. That's whether or not we are sinning by turning in on ourselves. They say that church budget is often a moral document, uh, that what we place value on in our church budget is a reflection of who and what we value in the world. We sometimes see it when a mission church is joining in with an established church, uh, as was mentioned before, that our ecclesial nostalgia can create a reality uh, where we end up blocking those who are coming in from doing the good work of ministry in a new way. We let them come into our buildings, but we don't let them worship in the way that they did when they weren't in our buildings. It's essentially a sin tax uh, towards those who are not like us. Uh, it is that oneness that Dr. Sanchez mentioned versus the Catholicity of the church. And so we need to think about not only how will we survive, but what will the character of our surviving look like? Uh, because before we get to thriving, we need to think about surviving. There's a danger in a survival mentality where we turn in on ourselves, uh, which amplifies the reasons we're in the state we are in. 
sometimes people say, well, we'll cut the missions budget because we want to survive. But the missions budget might have been the only thing bringing people into the church, which accelerates the decline of the church itself. I'll talk more about that in the Q&A because I feel like I am nearing the end of my time as I so often do. So thank you for your patience. Uh, but I'll bring up that uh, reality down the road. Uh, just today, Dr. Nunes uh, mentioned a mystery to consider. He said, to the extent that your faith is connected to God's love in Christ Jesus, you will keep it only by sharing it, never by burying it. Think about the parable of the talents where the person buried his talent because he was afraid of God or afraid of the master of the house. It's that same reality in our life of faith. To the amount that we try to just simply survive but not share what we have, that we bury it but we do not share it, uh, we end up finding our faith or our love shrinking as a result. Dr. Rosa Young put it in this way. She would teach all of her students this reality, that survival isn't enough. A life plus Christ equals success, but a life minus Christ equals failure no matter what you do. Here she's offering an implicit critique of Dr. Washington, who thought that the, the uplift of the race could happen through financial success. But she recognized that if Christ isn't at the center, if we put ourselves, our churches, our personhood, our preferences at the center and Christ is not there, then it's failure no matter how much we make or how big the church gets or how many people are in it, it doesn't matter. But when Christ is the center, there is success even in failure even in the failure to survive because Christ is our all in all. Because she continued with that reflection after the success or after the school was able to survive. And she said, just as God uses nature, creatures, disease, and death as instruments to bring men to Jesus, so he used the little Mexican boll weevil as an instrument to bring the Lutheran church to Alabama. Thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter, says the Savior. You see, she, she, she brought her theological lens to the reality of the day and saw that this moment that looked like her lowest was actually the spark that brought about the Lutheran church in Alabama and that moved from one school in Rosebud to dozens of schools and a college, a historically black college in Alabama as well. She couldn't understand it beforehand, but God always knows what he's doing. And so it's in that respect that she wrote to the director of black missions in uh, the Lutheran church uh, and said, our great leader took the wrong process. He preached industrial education and built a great school in Tuskegee. From that school, the sentiment reached the public schools. Dr. Washington's plan, while good in its place, will never solve the ultimate problem. The one thing needful is to teach the word of God. You see, in her time, there was uh, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was rising slowly but surely, and Booker T. Washington. Washington had a certain pragmatism, a certain uh, industrial education, make money and they will respect you. Whereas Du Bois was change the laws and they will have to respect you. But she found a way through theology to find a middle path where she recognized that against Booker T. Washington, there needed to be a certain idealism that survival wasn't enough 
that we needed to raise up teachers and preachers, that we needed that talented 10th that Du Bois was talking about, that we needed a culture of education. Uh, we needed a certain idealism that is found in scripture. But against Du Bois and his idealism that uh, she responded by saying, if you do not reach the masses and you only care about the talented 10th, then you are not doing a service uh, to one's race. Uh, that there needs to be a certain critical thinking, a certain pragmatism to survive, uh, to be able to, uh, to think about not just the reality of what things look like when life is good, but how to survive what she calls the plantation mentality of the South and even those within the church that want to hold certain people down. She needed to navigate racism in the church, but she also needed those same individuals to help build up the church in Alabama. How do you find an accommodation away in between the reality of racism, but the reality of the Catholicity of the church at the same time? Her theology was able, her theology of the cross was able to find a middle way between both realities. And so I return to that question that we began with. What if you did the work of a theologian and no one noticed? Moving forward, the historicity of the church can offer a different path than the one we are in today as we juggle with pandemic and racial tensions in the church and in the world around us. Rosa Young is an exemplary figure who often is minimized as simply a school teacher, but she thought through these things at a depth that has been under accepted or under appreciated. And I want to encourage the church not simply to survive because that's when we end up turning in on ourselves, but to thrive by sharing God's good news and God's love and God's mercy uh, to those, as Dr. Mar uh, Sanchez says, who are on the margins. I know I overextended my time, but not surviving, but thriving kingdom ministry in a time of pandemic and racial tension. I hope this was acceptable for the moment. And I will be sending all questions to Dr. Sanchez. <laughs> that was great. We still have about 10 minutes to for questions or comments. And uh, Well, I just love the, uh, uh, thank you so much, uh, Reverend Warren, because you have given us an example of what it means to do not only theology in a time of uh, pandemic and racial tension, which was certainly lived uh, by Rosa, but you have given us uh, an example of a voice underappreciated of a voice from the margin where the spirit of God is at work to teach us how to navigate in this moment. And it's a perfect example of what we're talking about. If yeah. we take the Catholicity of the church seriously, it means that we will listen more carefully to voices that have thus far not been uh, well represented in our theological enterprise. I was thinking we need this to be made into a, a number of articles. This needs to be put in some kind of magazine and then some kind of journal, you yes. know? Uh, so I encourage the uh, Reverend uh, Warren to do that for us. Yes. He, I don't think he has enough work to do. So it needs a little bit more work. <laughs> <laughs>
Anyways, I thought it was fantastic. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that we need more of. Yes. Well, I, I'd like to say thank you, uh, Dr. Sanchez and uh, Reverend Lattimore. Um, I, I think uh, with, with what uh, Reverend Lattimore was speaking about with Dr. Rosa Young, I, I think that's something that all of us need to cherish and embrace, especially her book, Light in the, the Dark Belt. And I believe, uh, well, there is a, a video out um, that I'm, I'm not sure whether all the churches have it, but I know our church has it. And I showed it to students of our school who were thinking Rosa Parks and not Rosa Young. And, and what I found out from that, our church members <laughs> needed to know because their pastor was under Rosa Young. And so it, it, was, it was a learning experience for, for all of us. So I encourage you that if you have not read the book, if you have not seen the video, I, I would encourage you to do that. It's a huge learning experience for, for all of us. So, so thank you, uh, Pastor Lattimore and, and Dr. Sanchez for your yeah. time today. Is it, is it possible that uh, we've often as a church body put so much baggage into our definition of oneness? In other words, we've attached so many things to what we consider is one, that therefore we make it impossible to be Catholic? That's an excellent question. And I would go to the historicity of the church yet again, because for Martin Luther, his response to the Catholicity of the church, meaning that everybody speaks and writes in Latin, was a thing that actually prevented the church from being one because there were too many who were unable to speak that language. It was only for those who are of a certain class or education or income level. And so he said, what we need in Germany is a German theology. Before he broke with the church, it was this recognition that we translate our faith in a particular way to a particular people so as to bring the good news to them. He didn't see a distinction between the Catholicity of the church as all sharing the same common faith and the reality that we need to translate that faith in a particular way at a particular time to a particular people. This was before he even translated it into German. He thought that the very structure of how communities think are different based on their region and culture and tradition and experience. But the danger is once we get power or once we're in charge and once we have convinced those around us that our understanding is right, we end up calcifying it into that same reality so that when the Lutheran church came to the United States, the only language that could be translated into was German because that was the only language that had theological purity. So they ended up redoing what the Catholic church did with Latin, but with German. So if you look at the archives of black Lutherans up until the 1920s after World War I, 
all of the documents, all of the writing on black missions was in German because that was the only language to do proper theological reflection in. And so it might not be purely language as am I speaking English or Spanish, although to this day, uh, there's a tension in certain churches in the Lutheran church that you can't have a Spanish speaking uh, service in a English speaking church because that divides the Catholicity of the church. But even more pragmatically, how are we translating our faith to people with different cultural experiences? Are we doing it faithfully for the Catholicity of the church or are we doing it to try to preserve our oneness, whatever that looks like? And so excellent question and one that uh, we need to wrestle with. Uh, there is, this is not anecdotal, uh, really the first Lutheran Hispanic in the Missouri Senator, one of the very first was Dr. Andres Melendez who was the Lutheran Hour speaker for many years. And I once heard Andy say that, uh, first of all, he had to preach his first sermon in German uh, because he attended the old Springfield Seminary and that he, he had to preach in German first before he could speak, preach in Spanish. The second thing is that he was sent as a missionary down to Laredo, Texas, and uh, he uh, uh, went into a bar and he wanted a beer and uh, they told him that they didn't speak, they didn't serve uh, Mexicans in, in this bar. And so uh, he, because he learned German, uh, he spoke to them in German and they served his beer. Just thought you might want to know that. He also incidentally, historically uh, coordinated the, uh, the uh, he coordinated the CIA what, what became the CIA during World War II, uh, Andy Melendez monitored uh, the, uh, the counterintelligence on the U.S. border in the South uh, to, to uh, listen to all German transmissions coming into the United States during World War II. He would supervise about 40 intelligence officers in South Texas and then get on a train and come up to the Luth to St. Louis and and tape his sermons for the Lutheran Hour. Uh, so uh, I, I just mentioned that as as a point of this this mixing of of the margin and the center and and how it interacts. And for the musicians, uh, you also know how Luther loved polyphony which would have been seen almost as heretical, moving from a monophonic culture where you have more Gregorian chant and things like that. And he actually talks about how he liked the new form and try to incorporate that. But like the uh, Reverend uh, Warren says, over time, uh, then we get maybe more used to the chorales and the hymn-like structures uh, of our way of life and might not always be seeing what kinds of musical forms and things are happening in the global south and you know and so how do we embrace the catholicity of the church uh, also in terms of beauty you see uh, and that's also remains a challenge you know because sometimes we go by our preferences and so on the catholicity of the church invites a richness of expression of beauty and how do we see that in, uh, in, you know, in the other? And so I think what is true of language is also true of other types of language. 
in this case, music and art and all that. How do our churches reflect in their art, for instance, in their architecture, in their structures, uh, the life of the church Catholic? Uh, so, we, I mean, we have a lot to learn here. I mean, I still get comments sometimes about, you know, when I talk about Hispanic ministry, every so often someone will come up and say, now, when are these people going to learn English? <laughs> <laughs> so the idea is you have to learn English in order to be fully a member of the church, which is, of course, a heresy to think in those terms. I think of uh, the form unity, in other words, a unity without Catholicity is ultimately a heresy. You know, it's, it's actually a, a way of life that goes against God's own vision of what life should be like. And so when that happens, I think we need to repent of that. And then also call upon the Spirit to align things in a way that are pleasing to God. So I think it's an invitation to prayer, to repentance and, and to prayer. Thank you so much. Well, I think we're about at our time. Um, thank you so much, Pastor Lattimore, Dr. Sanchez, and for you that joined us. And um, this is really encouraging. Thank you, Anne, for posting this to our, this is something I'd like for us to share again in keeping with our discussion, not just with our ethnic ministry, sisters and brothers, but also the whole church, because I think we all can benefit from this, so. Pastor Lattimore, would you close us in prayer, please? Sure thing. Let us pray. Dear Lord God, we give you thanks uh, that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood, that the God who may have seemed far off uh, was as close to us as a brother. We thank you that he laid down his life for us and that he gave us grace as a free gift so that we might go and do likewise and share that gift of God's grace to the ends of the earth. May we not turn in on ourselves and our own preferences and place us at the center, but may we always see you at the center and have a heart for the lost sheep at the margins. May we continue to have a heart that is broken a heart that is being made new day by day as our entire life is one of repentance, turning back to you again and again when we ourselves wander astray. Give us strength not only to survive, but also to thrive even in a time of pandemic and racial tensions. May we be energized and uplifted by the spirit of God that renews our strength day by day. May we also care not only for ourselves, but for those who are struggling in our midst, including Bill in Wisconsin, who tested positive for COVID, as well as Ray in Lansing, Illinois, who has just returned home from the ICU after testing positive for COVID as well. May we care about those who are at the margins, both those who are suffering from illness, but also those who are facing uh, the outcome of the sin that leads to death. Continue to strengthen us with that good news of Jesus Christ and him crucified so that we might inspire those who are cast off, downtrodden and oppressed, that they might know that you are a God for them as well and that you are a God for us. As we seek to uplift the Catholicity of the church, may we always put you at the center so that we might remember who we are and whose we are. 
Thank you for all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you are about to do. In the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone. Is there any other uh, housekeeping that we need to do, Anne? Um, no, just uh, everybody, like I said, will receive a copy of the recording who's on our Ethnic Ministry Network group. And then I'll also share this on our Ethnic Ministry page on the website. So it'll be available to all. Thank you. Thank hey, you Tom. so much. Tom, I, I had something I'd like to share. Um, when I, I lived in Minneapolis for a year doing, I, I went through the DCO program and did an inner. Um, an internship there in the church, they had four different um, ethnic ministries that worshiped there. The pastor was just a very visionary guy, realized very early, God's bringing the nations to us. So how can we help these immigrants kind of have, be able to worship here in America and reach them? And what this church did every year was just a global worship event where he invited different ethnic ministries to come and just like do a dance or sing a song. And it was just a time where we all worship together. So I just thought I'd share that with you. That might be something we could do within our own Missouri Synod, as well as maybe other churches. So, yeah, come and see. <laughs> mm -hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, everyone. Blessings. Thank you all.